You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all so much for joining me for episode 36, Grieving is Loving, Honoring the Depth and Breadth of grief. This is the final episode for this season and I'm so honored and grateful to be joined by Dr. Joanne Cacciatore to close out this season. She's an incredible human being and a huge personal inspiration. Before I share a bit more about Dr. Joe, I want to take a moment to acknowledge how incredible of a first season this has been. It's been so rich, so full of meaningful conversations with powerful guests on important topics and also some solo episodes where I've really shared from my heart about topics that are really near and dear to me and really a part of what many of us navigate as human beings. I also have been so inspired and invigorated by the energy and enthusiasm from all of you listening and I know time is a precious resource and it's been so moving that so many of you have invested your time not only in listening but in sharing how this podcast has made a difference in your lives. So I want to thank you all for spending your time in this way. I hope that you will continue to listen in for season two. And if you're interested in staying alerted for an announcement about that season, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at Dr. Foynes, D-R-F-O-Y-N-E-S, or you can check out my website, melissafoynes.com. I also wanted to share the exciting news that I just recently released a free resource on mantras for anxiety that I pulled together based on some listener requests. It's a guide that offers some examples of mantras and explains why elements of these mantras can be beneficial. The intention is to support you in cultivating personalized mantras that resonate with you and can truly help you navigate difficult anxiety moments and so the examples offered and the rationale for the benefits of each of them are meant to be a springboard for your own creations you can find a link to that resource along with a variety of other free resources in my bio on instagram at dr foynes and if you're interested in learning more about the holistic coaching program and some new workshops and other supports i'll be offering later this year please do check out my website melissafoynes.com for updates or follow along on instagram thank you all so much for joining me for this very special conversation today with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. I see Dr. Joe as such a light 
in this world. And she just brings so much heart to her work and so much wisdom. And it, I really can't express in words how much of an honor it is to have her here with me today and to be having this conversation. And she really is someone who is really such a central piece of shifting how our world and many of our cultures think about grief and experiences of grief. So Dr. Joe is a tenured research professor at Arizona State University, where she runs the Graduate Certificate in Trauma and Bereavement. She's also the founder of the Miss Foundation. And since 1996, she's worked with and counseled those affected by traumatic death, most often the deaths of children. She started the first therapeutic care farm in the world for traumatic grief, and it's based on a framework for incorporating 40 domestic and farm animals rescued from abuse, torture, neglect, and homelessness, and it's called Sela Care Farm. And she was recently featured on Oprah Winfrey and Prince Harry's Apple TV docuseries, The Me You Can't See. And she has two really incredible books. Her best-selling book, Bearing the Unbearable, Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief, won the Indies Book of the Year Award. And her most recent book of meditations, Grieving is Loving, was released in December of 2020. And Dr. Joe sources from a lot of personal life experiences in her own life, in the early course of her life, and the death of her baby daughter, Cheyenne, and has really committed her life to the service of others suffering traumatic deaths. So Dr. Joe, thank you again so much for being here with me thank today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That was a very generous and kind introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Well, you're very, you're very, very welcome. So Dr. Joe, I wanted to start by just reading a short paragraph in your book that really resonated with me as a way to launch into this conversation. And I, I hope that's okay sure, of with course. you. Okay. Of course. So it's, it's hard to pick because there are, there are so many excerpts in here that I just love so dearly. And this one comes from a chapter on duration of grief, since so many people who are grieving have these understandable questions about how long will I feel this way? How long will this take? So Dr. Joe writes, slowly at first, very slowly, I started to stretch and exercise my grief bearing muscles by being with my pain. Carrying such formidable weight, my muscles hurt at first, almost constantly they ached and burned with pain as my body objected to the new weight I had to carry. Over time, as I kept stretching, kept lifting grief's weight, I grew stronger and more flexible, becoming better able to carry grief in all its myriad shape-shifting forms. The weight I needed to bear never changed, only my ability to carry it. I wanted to adapt to the weight rather than having to overcome it, to force healing or to be at war with my grief or myself. And through such adaption, my heart grew, has grown bigger and my capacity to learn from and transform suffering has also enlarged. Even so, I would gladly give back my newfound strength and flexibility to have Cheyenne. And yet the other side of that truth is that decades later, I am more whole today than I would have been without having known and loved my daughter. Yeah. 
So Dr. Zhou, I was hoping you could share a bit about this question that people often have about grief and does it go away? And what does it look like over time? And will I always feel this way? I think these are such common questions that people, yeah. again, understandably have. Yeah, the, the way that I tend to understand and have always tended to understand grief is, um, especially for m my personal grief with my daughter's death, was that I would carry this for the rest of my life, that this is not something I will ever put down and walk away from. And that I'm okay with that. Like I have to, for me, it was very important for me to, to, to understand that the, the, the depth and breadth of my grief was going to going to be congruent with the depth and breadth of the love that I had for her. And th uh, that's something that we really push back against in our culture because of something that I call the happiness cult in my book. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that we have to be happy all the time and feel good all the time and, and that, and, and that we decry and, and marginalize feelings of suffering because let's face it, I'm not invited to, to a lot of parties because of the, because of the work that I do. I mean, it's hard. Like I'm, you know, I really, it's hard for people to talk to me about what, what my work is if they haven't had some personal experience of loss mm -hmm. and, and it's, and I, I understand why we live in a world that. Uh, where happiness is of the greatest import. And we have this dichotomous view of happiness that if you're grieving, you can't be content or happy or joyful. Um, it's if this, then you can't be this, or if this, then you can't be this. And that's actually not true. That's a false dichotomy. The, the reality is I'm a really joyful person. And I also cry really easily. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, when I'm teaching, I, I just got through teaching. I teach a provider training for therapists and psychiatrists, psychologists. And um, I, you know, I think I cried four times during the training and I just cry very easily. It doesn't mean that I'm depressed or not okay or and and even beyond that not joyful in fact i would say that it's not in spite of grief that i'm joyful it's because of grief that i'm joyful now it takes a while for us to get there because in acute grief when loss is catastrophic the first few years are are just there it's a mess it really is it's a mess it's it's the pain is so acute that it's very hard to even stand up on your on your legs um, anymore. I mean, you just you're just you feel like you're on your knees all the time and sometimes crawling. If we practice as we practice getting stronger, and also so it's it's what we do in terms of a practice of our own, but it's also the way that other people treat us. And this and this is really one of my critiques about the social system, Doctor. Is it okay to call you Doctor Melissa? Sure. Or just Melissa is actually just fine. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's one of the things about our social system that's so important is that if we don't have the support we need to get through this, then, then it does take much longer and it's much harder. It's a little like, you know, it's a little like planting a seed in uh, that, that in, in a really, really shady place that never gets any sun, never giving never giving it water, planting it in really crappy soil. <laughs> and then when the seed doesn't grow, you know, we castigate the seed and we insult the seed. There's something wrong with the seed. 
when in fact there's something wrong with a social system that doesn't know how to hold grief and doesn't know how to treat grievers with compassion and respect and dignity and how to remember their person who died and and invoke their presence at family holidays and and look at pictures and pour over videos and remember so so the 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 problem as i see it isn't necessarily how long we grieve it's that we don't have a system within which we can learn how to carry our grief and how to treat our grief with with respect and love ourselves because the world is telling us sending us these messages don't feel this way don't be sad get on with life it's time you know it's been too long you know i can't say the number of people i work with clients who have said things like well i reached out to my best friend after our son was murdered and um and she did come over but she came over and as soon as i started crying she said let's go get a drink you know, let's go to the bar. And I'm mm -hmm. like, that's, that's the wrong message, right? That's not the right message. Mm -hmm. But then, and then of course, when people develop substance use issues because of protracted or suppressed grief or inhibited grief, then we blame the substance. Then we say, oh, that person's an addict without considering the context within which they started coping with their emotions by trying to avoid with substances. It's just an, it's a really harmful, dangerous cycle of avoidance and and blaming the victims, blaming the people who are hurting. And and so when people ask me how long grief lasts, I say as long as love lasts. I mean, it's just not, I, it's, it's 30, it's going to, it's going to be 30 years and three years. It's 27 years for me since my daughter died. We're going on our 28th year. And I don't, I mean, I still grieve for her. I still miss her. I think about her at least several times a day. And sometimes, yes, I still cry. And sometimes I cry a lot. And sometimes I, you know, want to hide under the covers and pull them up over my head and say, I don't want this life. I, I want to research something else other than trauma and grief. You know, I want to research something that's, that gets me invited to parties and that doesn't scare people. But, but I'm also really joyful. And I'm also, I also feel like I live a pretty big and authentic life and, and certainly meaningful life. And for me, that's even more important than happiness is a life of meaning. Does that make sense? It, it makes absolute sense because I think grief for so many people is a way to stay connected to those that, that we love. Like you said, it's an expression of our yeah. love and we can't love without knowing grief. And yes. none of us can exist on this planet without, well, most of us can't exist on this planet without knowing grief at some point in our lives. And so it's, there really is this responsibility that we all have to ourselves and each other to learn yes. how to hold space for this yes. and because yeah. it's not something that's often modeled to us. And as you said, it's often modeled out of us, actually, yes. we're punished or treated as, um, what's the word? like lepers or, or we're really just treated as though we're, we're the problem. And so I, I do think it really is both for our individual and collective well-being to really continue to transform our ability to hold space for ourselves and each other. Because as you said, I think the experience of grief can be so isolating when there doesn't feel like there's a space for you to really truly be in your grief in whatever primitive raw way that that looks. And, and I know, you know, this, but so many clients have told me about 
therapists they've gone to, helpers, spiritual advisors who say that they specialize in trauma and grief. And yet those are some of the places where they've received some of the most harmful. Really harmful, yeah. Reactions. And so it's really hard to know how to create these circles of support that can really hold this. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts to share about that, how to really create the kinds of support that you need and deserve in the midst of grief, in whatever chapter of your grief that might be. Because as you said, there, there's the raw phase, but that doesn't just end and never come back. <laughs> that can be something that you experience intermittently throughout yeah. your life. And so yeah. it, it just feels like, so we need to grieve in, in community. And yet so often that community is hard to find. Yes. Yes. A couple of things. First, I want to give a nod to Dr. Dennis Kloss, Denny Kloss, who really, you, you said something about continuing bonds and grief being sort of a way of, of maintain bond maintenance, Mm -hmm. relationship maintenance. Mm -hmm. And that really comes from in the West, at least that comes primarily from the work of Dr. Dennis Kloss, who's been researching continuing bonds and has been writing about this for quite a while. So, you know, nod to my colleagues, my colleague, Dennis Kloss for that, because it's so important and it's and we tend to you know not really consider how important that can be um creating a community, uh, I call it the circle of compassion, you know, around grieving people. It's so important to do because we have to feel safe when we're vulnerable. And so, um, so whatever is in our circle that feels like it's, you know, emotionally violent or dismissive, whatever's in our circle that feels like it's not holding how we really feel, or we feel like we have to erect a facade of, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? And, and that facade feels too heavy. I, I tell, I give permission to, to the people with whom I work all the time. It's okay to hit pause on a relationship um, where, where you feel like you're being harmed right now. It's very important to protect your heart. And so that doesn't mean you'll never come back to it. It doesn't mean we have to do it in an acrimonious way. We can say to this person, you know, I, I'm just feeling really vulnerable right now. And I promise to circle back to our relationship because I love you and you mean a lot to me, but right now I just, I'm in a, I'm in a bit of a protection mode. And, and so I'm, I'm taking a little break from the relationship, but I, but I promise at some point I'll be back or, or if you're not sure, don't promise. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But that it's okay to say this relationship feels toxic right now. Mm -hmm. and, And it's not helpful for me. And right now I have to hit pause on this. And so how do we find, the people so it's a is how do we sort of clean our space Mm -hmm. so that we're surrounded by a circle of compassionate others and then and then b what does that circle look like and so this is very interesting i just published an open access study in plos and i i looked i i we asked uh, colleagues and i asked um grieving people you know what was your greatest source of social support who was your who were the actors and and what were the actions of good social support and we asked about every particular group of human we asked about online support groups and in-person support groups we asked about um, medical staff, nurses, uh, social workers in hospital and in thera- as therapists, um, mental health providers, funeral directors, first responders, friends, family, colleague, neighbors, workmates, uh, workmates, colleagues go together. Um, what else did we ask about? Gosh, we asked about pretty much every human group there was out there. And um, 
I am sad to say that we also asked about pets and animals and pets and animals far outperformed every other group mm. of humans. Mm -hmm. They outperformed clergy ayat, the spiritual leaders. That was the other group we asked about. They outperformed clergy and spiritual leaders. They outperformed family, friends, colleagues, workmates, neighbors. They outperformed therapists. They mm. outperformed support groups. <sighs> it's, it's really sad, but yeah. One of the things that we did beyond that was to ask people why. So we went to the people, mm -hmm. there were 89, there was 89% satisfaction with pets and animals, wow. which was far, yeah, it was far beyond the closest human group, I think was online support group, maybe at 67%. Mm. Right, a far, far percentage back, but mm -hmm. still. Uh, and so we, we asked those 89% who answered that way, we had a follow-up question for them, tell us why. Because I was like, what characterologically, what do animals bring to relationships that human beings seem to have mm -hmm. our time with? <laughs> and, and, and one of the things that was very interesting was their presence. Mm. They were just non-judgmental and they were just there. So when someone was, when a grieving person was crying, you know, their dog or their cat just came up and just laid with them. Mm. Didn't try to fix them. Didn't try to change them. Didn't offer them a drink or Xanax or, you know, just, or even a tissue for that matter, just sat with them and let them cry. And, and that was incredibly meaningful for grievers. There were some other things that we found like, um, the animal shared their grief. So oftentimes uh, grievers in the survey talked about the animal somehow being connected to the person who died. So um, after my dad died, I, I took my father's dog and um, kept my father's dog with me and I could see the grief in my father's dog's eyes. And we shared that. Mm. And, and so the sharing of grief and, and, and that's really potent. And I think I think for animals, I don't think that they have a fear of, of grieving people. I think that they act with love. They act with love and connection rather than fear and detachment. Mm -hmm. And I think we humans could really take a lesson from animals. So how do we find people who can emulate that? First of all, if you, you know, if you don't have a pet, maybe that's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Res rescue an animal. There's nothing quite like the love of a rescue animal. And I know I have 45 of them. <laughs> <laughs> I went from 40 in that bio. To okay. 45. So now it's 45. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but then beyond that, um, how do we do that? We, we connect with people who think like we do, who feel mm -hmm. like we do who have had similar experiences, but maybe not exact experiences. My daughter died as a baby, but when I was um, in early grief, the person I connected to the most was a woman who, <coughs> excuse me, lost her 16 year old son to suicide. Mm -hmm. And he was her only child. And my daughter was not my only child at the time. And, and so, you know, we had, we had so many things about our losses that were different, but, but we were enough alike in our emotions, in the way that we coped, in the way that we experienced grief, that that was what connected us. And, and so, so um, Tim's mom, Ruth, became a real source of, of co comfort and solace for me and one of my safe places to go when I was in despair. And of course, my animals were also very important to me. I had uh, two dogs, Yeller and Tezar, and they were very, very important to me. Um, so I, I think con 
connecting with people who are like others. And even if they haven't had loss, if they can hold space for it in a compassionate, non-judgmental way. And when we're crying, just let us cry, mm -hmm. you know, ask, you know, tell me about him. What do you miss most about him today? Or, or what was your favorite memory with her? Or will you share a photograph with me that, that, that is either of, of your deep love or even your deep trauma. I mean, I'm willing to look at hard pictures with you. I'm willing to go to the hard corners in your mind, the corners where no one else wants to go. Um, I'm willing to do that with you. I mean, if you can find people like that, find them. And then when you find them, tell them, thank you for being there. You know, it's important to, to reinforce for people how much this means to you and how Otherwise, we might feel so alone without their presence in our lives. The circle of compassion is incredibly important, and it's important to also protect our hearts from people who don't treat us in, that, in those kinds of ways. And that means from, you know, friends and sometimes family members and even therapists, feel free to fire your therapist if yes. your therapist isn't being kind and compassionate. If there's anywhere we should be feeling compassionate kindness toward our grief, it should be in our therapist's office. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I really appreciate the example that you shared about this compassionate way of having boundaries and protecting our hearts from, from other people, because there are some relationships in which even though I don't think it should be on the burden of the griever to educate people per se, but sometimes people are receptive and willing to give us what, what we need. And sometimes we don't know what we need until we don't get what we need. So of course, in some relationships, there is room for that, but intuitively sometimes we know or just have been shown that what we need is not possible yes. from a certain person in a certain phase of our life in this moment. And so feeling empowered to to see that as an act of love for yourself to yes. assert that boundary, I think is really, really important. And like you said, even with people who have various certifications or specialty, it's, 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 it's really needs to be up to you who, who feels like they belong in that circle. Yes. So I think that's yes. a really, yes. really important message. And, and as you were talking, Dr. Joe, this thought came to mind for me about how when we are in the support role, so often that can activate our own grief. And you don't have to be in a helping profession to experience this, right? This could be your loved one and how sometimes it can create a burden for the griever if they feel as though they need to modulate their grief in order to take care of you. Yeah. And so as part of creating a different culture around grief and holding space for grief for other people there there also I think is an important component about being with our own grief yeah. so that we can be there for other people yes. because we don't want to create that kind of burden for people yes yes it's one of the things one of the uh, most foremost teachings that we have in our in our model when we train providers if people need a good provider by the way we have a provider list uh -huh. of people who have been trained and and one of the things that we teach them is you have to do your own work you have to do your own work because you have to be very clear about what's yours and what's theirs and you have to be working with your own grief all the time otherwise your own fears your own biases your own sort of preconceived notions are going to interfere with your capacity to be in a compassionate relationship that centers the grieving client's needs 
in every single moment, in every single session. And that constant awareness of that mm-hmm. and the constant sort of doing our own work really helps us stay centered in what's mine, what's theirs, and how do I center, which is my job as, mm-hmm. as, a, as, as a helping professional, our jobs are always centering the client or the patient's needs above our own mm-hmm. and not reacting with fear. And fear is really big. I see it a lot uh, in, in um, therapists, uh, you know, therapist, counselor relationships with clients who have traumatic grief. I often hear stories and the stories as they're recounted to me, it seems like the other person is acting on fear all the time when people are getting petitioned against their will, because they say something like, I, I feel like I don't want to live anymore. Mm-hmm. I feel like I can't live with this grief and people react in ways without just having an honest, open conversation that's mm-hmm. transparent. And that says, look, I'm, I'm, I love you. And I'm really concerned about you. And my concern is that you conveyed to me that you don't want to be here anymore. So I just need to ask, does that mean you're going to kill yourself? Mm-hmm. Does that mean you have a plan to kill yourself? I ask people that all the time. Are you going to mm-hmm. kill yourself? Do I need to be worried? And can we work together to keep you safe? What can we do? because I care about you and people know that I care about them and they believe that I care about them. So it's a very different, when we act in love, not fear, it's a, it's a very different approach. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but, but so often, especially with traumatic grief, we act in fear and not love. Absolutely. I think that's such an important point. And I really appreciate too, what you were mentioning earlier about your teaching and how you you cried a few times in your training because I I do think, yes, there is this important component of being with our own grief and making sure we're tending to ourselves. Yet that doesn't mean we need to be robotic and devoid of emotion because I, I do think so much of, so much of being with people is about our presence. And there is a certain way in which we might cry where people might feel as though they need to take care of us. And then a way in which us crying communicates that we see them and that we are affected by what they are sharing. And so I think it's, um, of course, I, I think it is very important, again, to be regulating our own emotions and to not be sobbing and crying all the time when we're supporting people who are grieving. But I think sometimes the pendulum seems to swing so far to the other side where we work so hard on containing things that we're then not connecting. And I know you talk about this a lot in your work, the space of you, the other person and the space in between. And I think that is another beautiful piece of your work too. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, we, oh gosh, we, we have to be able to, and, and Yalom talks about this, right. In, in several of his books where he talks about the fact that he's not going to pretend he is not Irv Yalom, for those of you who don't know, the gift of therapy and many other books. Oh, there goes one dog. Yeah. <laughs> Finny, Finny, Finn, come here. Come here. I know you told them, come on. He's my little blind dog. Uh, come on, Finny, Finny, come on. You're okay. Um, where he talked about I'm not going to parade around my diplomas or my costumes or the letters after my name and pretend that I am not also affected by the same vulnerabilities that affect my patients. Mm -hmm. 
You know, it's a pretense, it's a ruse and people see that it's a ruse. <laughs> I'm affected by traumas, traumatic grief stories I hear and I'm affected by my own grief and my own experiences of loss and I'm affected by fear and guilt and shame and sadness and loneliness. I have the same thing. Anything that can happen to one of my clients can happen to me. I'm mm -hmm. not above that. I'm here to just help them. And I don't, you know, there are people who, who have called, who have referred to me as a healer. And I don't like that. And I do correct people. I don't heal anyone. I'm a helper, but I'm definitely not a healer. Whatever quote healing and whatever that means, we have to operationalize that word too, right? Mm -hmm. But whatever healing comes from a relationship is because of what the person who is being quote healed is doing the work that they're doing inside of themselves. Mm -hmm. It's not something that another person does to you. It's the work that we do ourselves. So it's, it's incredibly important because I think there's this hubris, there's this arrogance in psychiatry and psychology and social work that somehow we're better than the person and we're going to tell them what's wrong with them or we're going to tell them how we're going to fix them and that's not what should be happening and it probably isn't even what is happening what is happening is that people are being held they feel safe and to do their own work and then they're doing their own work and i think it was robert hall who said i don't heal people i help them be with what is mm. and the healing comes from that mm. and that to me is incredibly powerful and incredibly beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yes. Yeah. That really feels like it. Yeah. It captures <laughs> yeah. it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Dr. Joe, I would love to hear you talk a bit more about connection with animals in the midst of grief, because I know that's such a core part of what you do. And even the, the name of your care farm, Sela care farm is very important in terms of what it communicates. So I would love for you to share anything about that aspect of your work that feels important to lift up. Oh, sure. Of course. I'm always happy to talk about the animals. <laughs> um, yeah. So Selah is a, actually a Hebrew word and I'm, I'm, I don't speak Hebrew and I'm not Jewish, uh, but, um, but it's a word that it was in, often seen in the Psalms and it's a beautiful word. And it means the pause, you know, it means to pause. It's the prompt to stop and to pause, to be with what is. And so to me, that's what we are. The cellar care farm is a place to pause, to be with what is. And, um, you know, I had this experience with a horse. I, I, I have had this thing with animals for a very, very long time. I, uh, am a long time vegan, um, animal activist and, um, have loved animals since I was seven years old. And uh, they've been a very, very important part of my life. So the one thing that I hadn't connected was the power of animals and their relationship to human suffering. Um, and so, you know, a as a, as a longtime vegan, of course, I knew animals could suffer. I just hadn't connected how animals who suffered could help humans who suffered. Mm -hmm. So I rescued this horse, his name is Chaco, and I rescued him. He was being used as a pack animal. And it's a long story, but I was on a hike and it, I didn't even get on the hike. I just found this horse and knew I had to help him. And so I did. Um, and I work with a lot of native clients and one of, one of my native clients in particular, uh, after our session, um, wanted to go and sit with my horse. 
And I, it was, this was, this was two or three weeks after he was rescued. And I said, of course you can. Yeah. So I asked if she wanted me to stay with her or if she just wanted to meet with, with my horse alone. She said, I, I, I'll just be alone. So I said, okay. And, you know, about 15, 20 minutes later, I could hear her from my office door. I could hear her weeping and wailing and sobbing with my horse. And I looked out the window and he was just standing next to her with his head down. And I was like, wow, you know, something powerful is happening here. Mm -hmm. And so I started to think about his suffering. He had known a lot of trauma. He, he was 600 pounds underweight. Um, literally his bones had worn through his skin. His hip bones were coming through his skin and his spine. He ended up in back surgery, his spine, the, the bones of his spine were coming through his skin. And uh, that was really hard to see, Mm -hmm. of course, for someone who loved animals so much. And it was really Mm -hmm. traumatic for me, but it was even more traumatic for him. He had lived that way for a long time. And then I started to see that his suffering was in some way connecting with this grieving mother's suffering. And I was like, something important is happening here. And so I started to research hippotherapy, but that's not what I was seeing. So in traditional Mm -hmm. hippotherapy, it's mounted or un excuse me, or unmounted. And the, and the animal is sort of haltered and you walk the animal around and you have the animal do circles or you uh, have them jump if you're mounted or you have them walk if you're mounted. And that wasn't what I was seeing in this. What I was seeing in this and other clients who also asked to spend time with him shortly thereafter was um, a kind of oneness and suffering, a kind of relational, uh, relational identity in each, in the other, a symbiosis mm-hmm. in that moment of trauma and loss and grief and fear and all of these emotions that were both being seen by the other and held by the other. And I just thought, wow, that's something else, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So then I started to figure, I thought I started thinking, well, what if I could what if I could, you, you know, somehow integrate Chamaco, you know, he seems to be a better therapist than me. So what if I could <laughs> integrate him, you know, in some way in caring for people and providing loving support for people and being a counselor, if you will, for people. So I uh, started researching care farming and um, you know, care farming is very, very common over in Europe, but they're actually, it's a little bit different. It's, it's quite a bit different than what we have set up in Europe. They're, they're actually working farms where, and they use them a lot in like, for example, um, transitional spaces between criminal justice and civilian life, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, instead of, uh, instead when someone is released from being imprisoned, uh, they go to a care farm and they work on the care farm with farmers. And that, you know, that's, that was very interesting to me, but the problem is that sometimes, you know, when you have someone who's been so hurt by humans and they trust in an animal and they then build a relationship with an animal where they're bottle feeding this animal or caring for this animal and they fall in love with this animal. And then this animal goes out to slaughter Mm-hmm. Then they have yet another loss in their long domino history of losses, right? Mm-hmm. Here's another loss. You know, this calf that I've been bottle feeding for two months has now been sold and is going to 
Yeah. And, and so, and I, you know, I was, I met the sort of one of the primary researchers over in the UK, Rich Gorman, my colleague with whom I sort of helped, he helped sort of plan this, this little thing that we have going on. I got a big, um, and in my conversations with Rich, you know, I said, I have the perfect answer to that. You know, I'm a vegan. I've been a vegan for a long time. None of our animals will be forced to do anything. We won't use them for anything. They won't be exploited. They won't be taken away. The, the animals who stay, who come here will stay here. And our clients who come here and fall in love with them will be able to have a long relationship with that animal. And of course, we thought that was a brilliant idea. <laughs> and- <laughs> And, it is. Uh, and Kamako was the, the first, um, you know, the first farm animal we, we had already rescued. I think I had three rescue dogs at the time, no cats. Um, so we had three rescue dogs and we had Chimako and then we took in another horse to was his name. And so we had, and then we got scout. That's right. We got scout. And then we got, then we got the land for the farm and, and brought the three horses and the three dogs out here started with six and then <laughs> now we have 45. And so we have goats and we have sheep and pigs and dogs and cats and horses and donkeys and alpacas. And they have absolute autonomy here. They're an egalitarian piece of this model. We don't force or coerce them to interact with people. No one is ever haltered and forced to, to engage with a human. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have to, they can walk away if they want to, but they don't because, um, because they love the interaction. We have one pig, Maisie, she's a Duroc pig. And so intergenerationally, this is interesting too. She has a lot of intergenerational stuff because mm. intergenerationally she was bred. Her breed is, you know, is a breed to eat. And so, uh. you know, so she's probably inherited that fear and that's not a woo woo thing. That's plenty of, there's plenty of science about single generation epigenetic change in fear and trauma responses. Mm-hmm. So she probably inherited that fear. And so she is very wary of humans, but most of the other animals have sort of um, really worked with that fear and been able to overcome that fear because of love and compassion and a feeling of safety. Mm-hmm. And so they are really lovely and they're very, very good for the clients. And in fact, we're, we're collecting data and we've got, we've published a few studies about the care farm model already. And one of the things that I didn't know is, does it matter if the animals are rescued or not? I mean, would any animal do, or does it matter? And most people said, the overwhelming majority said the fact that these animals have known fear and known grief and known suffering and known loneliness and they hear their stories and it creates um, a a sort of a kindredship with this Mm. animal, a a relationship of suffering that, that helps them feel something different than Mm -hmm. what they feel, than what they believe they would feel if this animal was just a, a bred animal. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. And even thinking about it from my human perspective and times where I have been in the throes of more acute grief, for me, there has been this very strong desire to be around people who I feel understand deeply on some level what the experience is like. And so, as you were saying earlier with the person who you ultimately connected with most strongly, the exact details of the grief don't necessarily need to align, but to just really feel understood in this way, it just feels so, it has felt so important to me when I have been in those moments. And so I can understand how that would happen 
cross species, so to speak, yes, that, yes. that, that the presence being in the presence of someone else who has known pain and loss and suffering and trauma, there is something about that connection that yes. can be so rich and so deep and so powerful and it doesn't need words. I think. Yes. That's oh yes. That's the beautiful part about mm-hmm. it. It's not just pre-verbal, it's non-verbal, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's very, very powerful. We had a, in, in, we, um, before we built the respite house, now we have a place where people can actually come and, and stay here on the farm. And before we built that, we had day programs and we had a, a grieving mother who had lost her twins shortly after birth. And she came and we, we actually don't have cows because our fencing can't hold cows. They're really strong oh. and cows tend to lean on fences um, yet anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have, Mark your words, Dr. Joe. <laughs> cows. Um, but our neighbors have cows. And there was a point where this bereaved mom came and um, we were walking down and the a couple of days earlier, they had just separated the baby, the mother cows from the babies in the next pasture over. And uh, the mother cows were walking uh, down the fence line crying just, they would not start. It was, it was really, the cries were really uh, primal. It was a primal, primal scream almost. Mm. And this bereaved mom stopped at the fence line. We were headed down to the river because we were going to have our session down at the river. And she stopped and she was seeing the cows as they were walking back and forth. She had heard them when we, cause it's, it's a long property. So you have to, you have quite a walk. And so she had heard them crying and didn't know what it was. And then when she got around the corner, she saw that they had been walking back and forth. And she said, why are they, why are they crying? What's wrong with those cows? And I said, oh, well, are you sure you want me to tell you? Mm -hmm. She said, yes. And I said, they just took their babies a few days ago and they've been crying pretty much 24 hours since they took the babies. And I could see the, the, I mean, that's, she wanted to just stay there with those cows. Mm-hmm. Like all she wanted to do was stand at that fence with those cows. She's like, I know what it's like to have my babies taken away. Mm-hmm. And I know how they, how I longed for them. And she wasn't, she, this was not a person who was sensitive to animal suffering before. And that day she stopped. Uh, she became a vegan actually that day. She stopped dairy and meat that day. Not on my prompting. This was a moment of perspicuity, a moment of oneness and suffering that she experienced. And, and she felt seen by those cows and she saw those cows in that moment. And it shifted something for her that was incredibly powerful. And I'll never forget that day. I cr- I mean, I cried. I like when she had that moment, I had tears in my eyes because that's profound. When you see someone make that connection, it's a profound, it's this light bulb. No, it's, it's bigger than a light bulb. It's a lightning flash and, mm-hmm. and, it, and, you, and you can't unsee it once you've seen it. And so it was really profound for her and it changed her life and changed her relationship to grief in a really profound way. I mean, she, she had been sort of criticizing her own grief in a way like, oh my gosh, it's been a year. Why am I still so sad? You know? And she's like, oh my gosh, you know, these cows are crying for their babies too. Why wouldn't I be crying for mine? You know, there was so much sort of so much that happened for her in that moment. You know, it's like J95 to Lakewa, the 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 pilot whale who carried her baby's Mm -hmm. body around the Atlantic ocean for seven weeks. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's 
that's grief. That's this, that's this mother, not just this mother, but also her pod who helped her carry the baby's body. That's sort of the recognition of, yeah, we suffer. We all have grief. We all suffer. And, and for seven weeks, by the way, for seven weeks, the entire world stopped and watched this and oohed and awed at how beautiful this expression of grief was. <laughs> and yet we have this thing in, in the mental health system where, where if you're grieving for more than two weeks, you could be diagnosed with a mental disorder. Mm-hmm. Very, very strange. Right. Yeah. And, and where other people's discomfort can often understandably contribute to our fears about really being honest about what we're experiencing. Oh yes, absolutely. And in fact, influence how we feel because sometimes we internalize those stories because Mm -hmm. we're scared and we're vulnerable because we don't know what's normal. And if everybody around us is telling us, oh, you should be feeling better by now. It's been two weeks. It's been two months. It's been two years. Mm -hmm. You know, you should be over this by now. Why are you still talking about it? Why do you still have her pictures up? Shouldn't you take her pictures down? Mm -hmm. Oh, don't you think it's time you move on? Wouldn't he want you to be happy? I mean, all of this, all of these intimations are really Mm -hmm. dangerous and harmful for grieving people, especially especially if they get internalized and then we start doubting ourselves and we start not trusting our own emotions. I mean, I don't see how mental health providers don't see that as a problem. Oh, I'm, I'm a hundred and thousand and ten percent with you. Yeah. <laughs> really, frankly, especially with, uh, especially with people who, who represent minority groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are already vulnerable to self-doubt and questioning because of the way that their their particular vulnerable group has been treated by the dominant narrative. (laughs) Black and indigenous people of color, GLBTQI communities who have already been treated, marginalized by society, and now they're being marginalized. Now their emotions are being marginalized in another way. So if they're grieving, you know, it's just, it, you know, I call it emotional colonization and it's really ugly and it's, and I don't understand why we don't question it and push back against it because, because to colonize someone else's grief experiences, emotional experiences is to colonize something that's really holy and that's, that, that, that belongs to them. And we have no right to take something that belongs to someone else. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think this, this idea of colonization is so powerful or disenfranchisement of grief and even taking away the the practices that for centuries have helped people mourn and grieve and so for so many of us finding our way back to that is is often so challenging and in yes I know in your book you because because I'm sorry to interrupt no you go go because it's been because it's been whitewashed yes because it's been white wealth wealthy, um, education washed. There's a, there's a great book for those of you who are interested in this. There's an incredible book by a a native scholar called decolonizing trauma work. And I recommend it everywhere I go. And I tell my students, you have to read this book. Mm -hmm. You have to read the book, decolonizing trauma work, because, because many of the ideas that we have about trauma and grief come from that attitude of whitewashing. And we should all be offended by it. And we should all be standing up against that system that further oppresses and marginalizes 
uh, people who are, whose wisdom about grief and loss is more collective, whose <laughs> traditional healing ways are far more healing than the whitewashing crap we push today, and who really know how to create a community, a that circle of compassion around grieving people. And that has been taken from them because of the whitewashing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, as you said, I, there's so much systemic change that needs to happen and more outrage, right? More, yes. more outrage too, because as you know, all of our emotions serve a purpose and a function and that kind of outrage and anger is mobilizing. It mobilizes yeah. us to enact change, to really commit to making a difference. And I think, again, it's a personal responsibility for us all to see what are the ways in which we're participating in this. Yeah. E even though it might seem separate to say some kind of platitude to someone and it might be well-intentioned to really examine how our own anxiety about grief, how our own discomfort with sadness and loss shows up in these ways, because so much of it, as you said, comes from our own fears about not wanting to go through what someone else is going through or for our, or related to our not knowing how to be with it and not feeling competent. I, I think there's just so much of our personal emotional experience that comes up around grief that leads us to act in these ways that actually perpetuate these toxic yeah systems and messages. And like you said, create further harm. So people yeah. are already traumatized and grieving. And then there are these other additional layers of trauma and, and grief that they're facing because yeah. of our, our responses and reactions. And yes, yes, all true, all true from the, from the spiritual platitudes that come from, you know, dominant religious groups, yes. which may or may not even be the grievers belief system exactly you know yes. to to um you know to the noble lie that some of my therapists admit to telling because they have to build the insurance company in order to get a service covered for mm. a grieving person but they tell the noble lie because they want to get it paid for a noble lie is still a lie let's mm -hmm. fight the system right. that requires that let's yep. fight against the insurance companies that won't pay for supportive counseling that will only pay if you pathologize someone's normal grief mm -hmm. there's something wrong with the system not the person hello right and then that sends the message that again there's something wrong with you or there needs to be something wrong exactly. with you to legitimize that's right. what you're experiencing that's exactly right mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's a real cluster, isn't it? It really is. It really is. <laughs> Which is why we need people like you in the world, Dr. Jones. And you. Yes. And together, you. together. Kindred spirits. That's right. And in, I, I think another part of this whitewashing and colonization and disenfranchisement that hurts us all, regardless of whether or not we might may or may not be identify with different groups is ritual and how divorced many of us have co have come from the practice of ritual and for so many people who are grieving ritual becomes a really important part of being with grief and i know in your book you talk about grief, excuse me if I'm misquoting you in any kind of way, but the spirit of it as I have internalized it is that we all have our unique grief fingerprint. So our own unique way of being with and expressing and, and moving with grief over time. And that through 
art and ceremony and narrative and creation and silence and speech and nature and symbols, there are just so many different kinds of rituals and micro rituals that can help us be with grief, that can help yes. us yes. express our love yes. for the people that we've lost. And yet so many people I encounter don't know where to begin with ritual yes. because some of these traditions have not been passed down or they've become disconnected from them, or it's not something that is quote unquote, socially acceptable, like in the immediate aftermath of death, often there is more recognition of ritual, I think, in the form sometimes of a memorial service or a funeral, um, planting of a tree, those kinds of things. But over time, that that gets lost. Yeah. And I know you, you know all of this and talk about all of this, but even people not using the names of people who have died, not asking about them when it's some amount of time afterwards. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about ritual and micro ritual and how you help people kind of find their own yeah. way of practicing ritual because it is so unique to each loss and each person. Yeah. Yes. Well, first I want to give a nod to a couple of, um, well, Francis Weller's work, Francis Weller's big into ritual. And so he's a, is a wonderful colleague. I've never actually met Francis in person, at least yet. <laughs> Um, but, you know, the wild edge of sorrow, uh, you know, Francis yes. tends to touch on on ritual quite a lot in his work. And I really admire his work about that. Um, and also Dr. Suki Miller, who says uh, ritual is the antidote to helplessness. And uh, and, you know, again, this is I'm going to go back to the to the indigenous wisdom. You know, indigenous ancient mystic people knew how important ritual was, and they always had ritual. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain religious groups today. Um, I have I work with a lot of Jewish families uh, whose loved ones have died, and the practice of yartzeit. All of the rituals that are ensconced in different cultural groups have a great deal of sagacity under them. This is mm -hmm. this, these, this, these are wise things that we do to recall this person back into our lives because may we never forget our dead people. May mm -hmm. we never forget them. Mm -hmm. We have to remember them. And so, um, you know, ritual is so often circumstantially and culturally proscribed. And so if I'm working with someone, like I said, I work with a lot of native people and their rituals are very much their rituals. And so I just create the space for it. Like, what do you want? How do you want this to happen? I don't I don't orchestrate ritual for people, but for people often from the West, we don't know, um, sorry, for wet, for Americans, traditional Americans who don't have a strong foundation in culture and religion and ethnic ritual, mm -hmm. people don't know, have the slightest idea how to do ritual. And so what I say is, well, let's, let's think of the things that are important to you. What symbols are important to you? what dates are important to you? You know, what, what emotions are the most important to you? What elements of nature are the most important to you? And then let's find something that we can do, or it doesn't even have to be something grand. It could be something small. The paper, the research paper that I wrote about where I talked about micro ritual, micro rituals are these tiny little things that people do that are these, these rituals of reconnecting with their dead person. Like, a bereaved father with whom I worked who every morning before his son died, he would say, good morning, son, I love you. Good morning, dad, I love you too. It was like this 
exchange that they had and he stopped doing that and it was just a little thing but it was important and even when he traveled he still did that little ritual where he would call his son and say good morning son i love you good morning dad i love you if they couldn't talk it was this every morning thing well then he dies okay and then what you know like he doesn't get to do it anymore because if he does it everyone's going to think he's weird and all i had to do was say you know you can still do that. And he's, mm-hmm. He just needed permission from someone he saw as a quote, you know, a whatever expert, expert or something. Right? You know, which I'm not. But this is to me, this is why not. Like mm-hmm. this is your son. You can say anything you want to him. Mm-hmm. This is your experience. You get to have your experience. Don't you know? You don't have to care what anyone else thinks. And so he started doing it, and it was so meaningful for him, and it was so profound. And I think that actually, now that I think about it, I think this story is actually in my book. But but the, the then he when he did it, he came back the next week and said, "I heard him. I heard his voice mm-hmm. say, I love you too, Dad.'" And I mean that's beautiful. We don't like, we don't want to remember that. We don't want to experience that. Of course we want to experience that. Of course we want to reconnect with our people we love who died. And that's a beautiful thing to do that. So, you know, I, again, I just tend to think like even our, our sense of ritual has been whitewashed and, um, you know, and, and over, you know, over sterilized, you know, like we can't, mm-hmm. like we can't just, yeah, it's really hard because people are so afraid of what other people are going to think about what they do. And, you know, I have families who want to videotape, for, for example, they want to videotape their, their child's funeral. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as a, as a means to not only ritualize in the moment, but then to be able to revisit and re-ritualize later. And, you know, they're told that that's strange, that that's weird. Don't do that. It's unhealthy. And, and I just shake my head. I'm like, you know, we watch famous people's funerals all the time on TV. We televise it to millions of people. What a double standard. Why is that okay? But if we want to do something for someone we love who died, that's not okay. It's, we have a very bizarre relationship with grief and trauma in our culture. And I, I can't wait for the day that that change. I hope I'm, I hope I live long enough to, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in the second half of my life now. I'm old now, but I, I really hope I live long enough to see that shift because it's really, it's bizarre and it's really sad. I, I hope that I live to see that day too, because so often I'm just so struck by how human this way is, right? Grieving in this way of doing what makes sense to you, being in it, creating space. It just seems so natural. And all natural. these other That's things. The word. That's seem- the word. Yeah. And the, reason, and the reason the word is natural is because we need only look to the animals to teach us that it's natural. Mm-hmm. You need only look to J95 or the numerous, numerous studies and examples from biological science about primates and how they carry their babies' bodies around for weeks and months and how elephants mourn each other's mm-hmm. death. We need only look to the natural world to teach us what's natural. And we have made it somehow unnatural and pathological. It's rather bizarre. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's why so often I'm like you, I know people can't see us right now, but we're at various points, we're putting things in quotation marks, air quotes and shaking our head. But, but yeah, it's just like, why is this the socially acceptable thing when it seems so far from what, from what feels normal? 
And well, I think it's I think I think the answer to that is because um, because humans some certain groups of humans have decided that, mm-hmm. and uh, certain groups of humans who have exerted their authority, and I think we should all be dissenting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I'm. I'm a dissenter. When when an injustice is happening, I'm a dissenter. I'm like, no, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't care who says it. It's wrong. It's not right. It Walt Whitman says if it if it offends you, dismiss it. If it offends your heart and your soul to dismiss it, yeah, it offends my heart and my soul. Mm-hmm. And I'm dismissing it and I'm going a step further and dissenting. Mm-hmm. And we need more dissenters. Dissent, dissent, dissent. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think too, in the midst of grief, this practice of remembrance is, you put this so beautifully in in your book. I think you say something like, when we remember, we bring the whole of their existence back into our hearts. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm sorry if I'm misquoting you, but it's no, no, that's, no, that's, that's how that's I've internalized right. it. That, no, but and, that's right, right? And, and to really honor our love just feels so natural and so important and not something to be ashamed of and to feel guilted out of that. I mean, this experience of being human is so much about connection and love. And so why not allow grief to be an expression of that? Why not allow ritual to be an expression of that, a way to connect and to honor something that is really sacred? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, uh, what I tell people all the time is if I woke up tomorrow and my grief for my dead daughter was gone, I would be sad. I would feel sad. Mm -hmm. I would feel like I lost something very important. I don't imagine that it ever will. I mean, if it did, I would have to accept that that's what happened, but I don't feel the need to make my grief go away. I think I probably will always feel sad that she's not here. I, I can't imagine a day would ever come when I wouldn't feel sad. Whoops, hold on just a second. My cat is chasing a grasshopper. <laughs> get, get. Oh. Sorry, grasshopper. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Your your compassion is in action right now. Live <laughs> yeah, witnessing. We, we don't we don't kill grasshoppers here. So the cat went outside and the grasshopper's inside. Oh until, no. Until I can safely rehome the grasshopper. <laughs> Oh, oh you're amazing. I love it. I really do. I really do. Well, it, this is also bringing to mind to me this important message that, that I truly feel in my bones. And I know that you do too, because you express it through your work, which is our interconnectedness. Yes. And how compassion and kindness for you personally and in the work that you've that you've done with many clients has been around cultivation of compassion for self and others and acts of kindness that are done in memory of other people. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts or reflections to share on cultivation of compassion for self and others and how you see that as intertwined with, with being with grief. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think grief breaks our heart open Right. And so I I don't think when loss is catastrophic, you know, when it's when it's someone we love very, very, very much, a parent, a partner, um, you know, a sibling, a a child, when this loss is catastrophic and core to our identity, 
or whomever it is we love. When it's a person we love very, very deeply and it's catastrophic, I think our hearts are, are absolutely shattered. And I don't think you can remain unchanged. I think you have to change. I think it either makes our lives smaller because we, we fold into the pain and we, we feel like we have to self-protect and hold those pieces of the shattered heart mm -hmm. together. Um, and then we become very guarded because we're like this, trying to hold it together, or we let it all fall and it lands softly in the world and we affect change through compassion for, for others. Either we do or we don't. And, and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think you can stay the same person after that. So it's either you get smaller or you get bigger. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, I mean, it was very important for me to honor my child's life in some way. I mean, she didn't live long and her death, um, you know, her life didn't get to touch very many people. So, you know, if my life got smaller from her death and I didn't take care of this vessel, this body that could then help other people, then, then she, then she just dies. And, and there's, and I just felt like, well, then she's just, then she's just dead. And I don't get to bring her love to the world. If my life, if my world, if my sense of self is smaller, so I have to work really hard, um, you know, cause I, I, I didn't come from, you know, what I would call a particularly high functioning, uh, childhood. And, and so either, either it was going to destroy me or it was going to really make me who I, who I was going to become, which was going to integrate and embody her. And, and so I started to see that there was no other. And, and, and I think otherizing is dangerous for humans. I think our propensity to otherize is what creates prejudice, hatred, war. Um, and, and I think it perpetuates the cycle of intergenerational trauma and intergenerational harm, intergenerational physical, sexual abuse. You know, I think all of that shit comes from our incapacity to to see clearly that there is no other, that what we do to mm -hmm. any other being we're doing to ourselves. Chief Seattle said that, right? And there are many versions from mystic uh, religious traditions that talk about that, that golden rule, you know, sort of, sort of you, you, you can't do something to someone else without doing it to yourself and that you, we should act then in kindness to others the same way we would wanna be treated, mm -hmm. right? And, and for me, others has a very broad definition. In other, I include all sentient beings, animals, and, and the earth as well mm -hmm. as a living organism. And when you let your heart fully break, and, uh, break open and you don't try to self-protect, you know, there's a, in Buddhism, there's a god, Avilokiteshvara, who holds the world's sorrows in her heart, right? And, and like people, people often say, why would you want to feel the world's sorrows? And the reason is because if your heart breaks over and over and over again, then you just keep re-experiencing deeper and deeper compassion and the capacity for compassion for everything. And, um, and that can be very hard at times to, to face the injustice in the world that can be very hard to hear about what's happening in other places where people are hungry, where people are war torn, where, 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 where hurt is suffering, but even, but even worse than that is the, the is the 
or even animals who are being, you know, really badly abused in a, in a very grotesque animal agricultural system that promotes torture. To do this, to, to not look, to turn away from any suffering, um, is, it, it's not only helpful, but it enables the, enables the injustice. <laughs> it enables the violence. And that, and, and of course it's not acting in compassion because compassion means calm, which is with, and passion means suffering. It means to be with the suffering, not to avert our gaze. It means to look and say, if there's nothing I can do to stop this, at least I'm going to allow myself to feel the pain of this being, of this person. And if there is something I can do to stop it, then I'm going to do what I can to stop it. Mm -hmm. And if that means just being a, a, a compassionate ear in a moment of grief, or if that means getting out there with protest signs, or if that means choosing a different kind of way to eat and be in the world, then so be it. But until we've opened ourselves to having our hearts broken over and over again, it, it get, it's increasingly harder to, to get to that place. I call it a place of fierce compassion. It's unstoppable, really. There's, there's such a fire there. And, and I love how you emphasize that all of this coexists, that the, the ferocity of this compassion, this ability to cultivate joy and to get to a place where, where we laugh and, and don't berate ourselves for laughing. And yes. also we carry our grief too, that yes. there's, there's space for us all, for it yes. all. For it all. And in fact, more space the you know when the bottom drops out there's the potential for the top to come up too mm -hmm. you know a contraction happens like this right mm -hmm. and an expansion happens like this and so it's about the expansion it's about expanding to all that is and holding all that is i mean that's what yoga is yoga is not an asana yoga is about being with is with what is without needing to change it and it's also mature psychology it's a mature western psychology mm -hmm. So, and what I really believe when many different traditions coalesce around a similar message, there's really some, some powerful wisdom power, there. Real power. Yeah. And I think we should be deferring to the indigenous, indigenous wisdom of ages, age past, you know, I mean, I just think indigenous people knew how to, um, how to hold each other up collective cultures know how to hold each other up and individual cultures are too busy blaming people for problems of society. I mean, may we not blame people who were oppressed and upon whom genocide was committed for their quote mental health problems. There's a problem with what happened to them. Right. Uh, and and um, Eleanor Longden says this beautifully in her TED talk. Um, she's a woman who is diagnosed with um, schizophrenia and had uh, quote, mental health issues. And um, she says this beautifully in her TED talk where she says, it's not what's wrong with a person, it's what happened to the person. Mm -hmm. And and what's, what's pathological is that genocide can happen. What's, path, what's pathological is what happened to native people in North America and around the world. What's pathological, uh, you know, are, are, are genocides and Holocaust. So that's pathological. Mm -hmm. The reaction to it is because it happened. And yes, of course, people need help, of course, and we should give it to them without, without blaming them for what they're going through. Poverty, for example. Why do we blame people who are impoverished for their poverty when the social situation itself is to blame? Mm 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and again, it comes back to what you mentioned earlier about seeing us as separate and otherizing. Yes. And it's, yes. it's in many ways, I think when we otherize, we, we dehumanize and we see what someone else is experiencing as, like you said, their fault. So therefore it can't happen to us. Yes. So there's some kind of way in which it falsely protects us and deludes yes. us into thinking we have more control than we do. Because like yes. you said, what happens to one person on this planet could happen to any of us. Any of and us. so that's right. that's it's, right. it's really important. Yes, that's right. To recognize that. Without a doubt. So Dr. Joe, I, I want to talk to you for thousands of hours more, <laughs> but I, I know we have a short time together and I want to make space for anything we haven't touched on that's on your heart today or, or that you just really want to make sure we share with people listening. I, I have something, but I don't want to talk with you about it just yet because I have to wait till the paper is accepted. Okay. And okay. once the paper is accepted, I would love to talk to you about something that is incredibly important and incredibly dangerous that's happening. And, um, and I would love to, to be able to have a conversation with you about it. I would love that so much and would be honored. And I am... I will try not to lose sleep thinking about what it, what is to be revealed, but I just am, am such a, um, a a fan is not, is an understatement, but I just so admire your work and all that you are doing to transform our culture. Well, not all cultures, but, but the cultures that are problematic and the, the way that you are working to, revolutionize how we offer space to people and even give them their power back. Even how you talk about, I'm not the healer. They're, yes. they're the ones that, yes. that do the work. I'm, yes. I'm here as a helper, as a companion yes. Yes. and not yes. because I think that's, that's another damaging aspect of. Yes, this. yes, absolutely. And, you know, and just nod to all the people who have joined their voices, you know, through the foundation, we have, you know, thousands of people who have raised their voices and said, you know, this is mine. You're not taking it. This is my grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have lots of providers in our system who choose to push back against the very harmful narrative of mm-hmm. that's being perpetuated nowadays. And so nod to all of them and bow to all of them and bow to you and mm-hmm. let's raise our voices. Let's descend. Let's say, no, 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 <laughs> no, mm-hmm. you're not taking what's ours. No. Absolutely. And it's, it's an act of courage. It's an act of courage to be with your own grief and to work on flexing your companioning muscles to hold space for others who are grieving. So, so Dr. Joe is again, such an honor, such a delight, such a pleasure. And thank you so much for carving out time today for this, for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I look forward to talking again. Yes, same, same. All right. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave a review. And if you'd like to reach out or connect more, I would love to hear from you. So please check out my website or follow me on Instagram. 
To find me on Instagram, you can search for Dr. Foynes. That is D-R-F-O-Y-N-E-S. And to learn more about me and connect via my website, you can visit melissafoynes.com. That is M-E-L-I-S-S-A-F-O-Y-N-E-S.com. Thank you so much for carving out the time to join me this week. And I look forward to having you join the next time.